grace, mercy, and peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Paul declared, and if I may paraphrase, I did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. Our modern ears do not hear exactly how countercultural the statement of Paul was to his audience in first century Corinth. To set the context for you, the Corinth of Paul's day was a Roman colony with a relatively affluent and well-educated population. They were accustomed to their leaders using honed rhetorical devices to present a convincing argument and win the allegiance of their audience. The ancient schools of their time, what we might consider colleges today, trained up leaders specifically for the task of building and presenting persuasive arguments. And of course, adding a little dramatic flourish was never a bad thing either. Public argument for them was a form of entertainment. For a modern comparison, consider our current political debates. The Corinthians wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be impressed. They wanted glory. We see this throughout the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. They, the Corinthians, had devolved into factions around the personalities of the apostles, which one they wanted to emulate. You can almost hear some of the Corinthians saying, I like Paul. He's got it all figured out. No, no, no. That smooth-talking Apollos, he preaches circles around Paul. I like his style. Whatever, you guys. I'm all for Peter. He may be a little rough around the edges, but he's a real straight shooter, and I like that. Does any of this sound familiar? Then Paul asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? These were the figures that were glorified by their fellow man who spoke with lofty speech and wisdom. But Paul says, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Well, why would Paul say this? Well, he continues, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. How easy it is for us to be like the ancient Corinthians. By their sin, they allowed themselves to devolve into factions. That would never happen around here, right? Later in chapter 3, Paul writes, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. By our actions, is there anything that we do that destroys God's temple? That little bit of gossip that was too juicy for you not to share that request for forgiveness that you ignored, that passive-aggressive response to the person who hurt you, I can confess that I am probably guilty of this more often than I would like to admit. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we find ourselves not 
so different from those ancient Corinthians to whom Paul wrote. Knowing all of this, Paul offers a solution to the divisions, the sin that plagued the Corinthians and that plagues us today. And it is not a lofty speech. It is not some inspirational or motivational sermon. It is not some message of self-help. It is only this, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And honestly, after spending hours this week working on this message, there is nothing else I have to offer you than Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now I can hear the Corinthians saying to themselves, and maybe you're thinking this as well, really? That's it? We waited all this time for Paul to send this letter and that's all we get? We spent an hour out of our Sunday morning and that's all you have? Yes, that is it. What more do you want? What more do we need? For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now for those of you thinking that you might be able to get out of here a little early this morning or maybe make it to potluck a few minutes sooner, hold on, there's more. For Paul is saying more than five simple words. There is so much packed into Jesus Christ and him crucified. First, let's start with Jesus. Always a good place to start, I think. So often we see or speak Jesus Christ as if it is one term, one word, one singular name. But I want to separate the two here this morning. Jesus is the man and Christ is his function. Here we see the humanity of Jesus, for this was a man, a real live man, a historical figure. And I told our apologetics class this morning, I was going to put them on the spot, because they can tell you that Josephus and Tacitus, two non-biblical writers, also attest to the humanity of this man, this Jesus of Nazareth. And Paul writes to his letter, in his letter to the Galatians, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman born under the law. Here we have a man born under the law who knew temptation, who knows our experiences. A man who grew tired, who grew hungry. A man who knew pain, as we will see on the cross. And a man who knew sorrow. After all, Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, as we read in the Gospel of John. And this is all to say in the words of the teacher to the Hebrews that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus is a true man, able to sympathize with your darkest hour or your greatest joy. Jesus Christ, This man from Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah, the Hebrew word for Christ. 
Again, we need to put ourselves into the shoes of the ancient Corinthians to whom Paul was writing, especially the Jewish members of his audience. This long-awaited Messiah was understood to be a royal figure, an earthly king who would free the people of Israel from their earthly oppressors. Now make no mistake, there was an eschatological dimension to their understanding of who the Christ would be. Someone who would be, in the words of Adam Simon Vanderwood, a divinely commissioned individual who will play a part in accomplishing the awaited salvation. But this Christ, this Christ to them, would be both an earthly king and a divine savior. This is what the people were thinking when they shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, as Jesus was entering Jerusalem. The reference to David is an unmistakable reference to royalty, to kingship. Here is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey, as Zechariah's messianic prophecy had foretold. But ultimately, Jesus was not the Christ they were looking for, but he is the Christ that God intended. As Jesus tells Pilate, my kingdom is not of this realm. No, Jesus was not the Christ they were looking for. He came not to overthrow governments, but to overcome sin. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the Messiah foretold by Zechariah and the Messiah foretold by Isaiah, who prophesied, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ was and is God's perfect plan to redeem the world, to redeem you, and to redeem me, to take our sin upon himself, to be our ransom paid in full, to die for you and to die for me. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ was crucified for you, for your sin. Your sin, my sin, nailed Christ to the tree where he died. But in confessing Christ crucified, we are confessing Christ raised from the dead, that Christ has conquered death. Alleluia, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Christ rose for you. And by his death and resurrection, you are saved. You are redeemed. Not by your own works, but by Jesus Christ and him crucified alone. And it is here, in Christ's crucifixion, here at the cross where we see, where we experience the power of God that Paul speaks about in our reading this morning. Now the ancient Corinthians had a hard time seeing this. You see, they were influenced by a theology of glory. 
Some want to follow Peter, a Jew's Jew who follows the law, thinking that their faith must be accompanied by works of the law. Others say, I follow Paul. If just my theology is good enough, is strong enough, that will please God and show my faith. Others may say, I follow Apollos. If my preaching, my church work, my volunteering is just good enough, then I will please God. Now this should not be surprising to us. We are all by our nature theologians of glory. We, like the Corinthians, are tempted by works, by glory. Yes, I have faith, but by showing up to church every week, I show how strong my faith is. Yes, I have faith, but by volunteering in the church, I show my commitment to God. Or if I just preach a good enough sermon to you all this morning, God will be pleased with me, right? But Paul knows nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is the ultimate theologian, not of glory, but of the cross. The theologian of glory, writes Gerhard Ferdi, searches endlessly for escape hatches. They think that for the system to work There must be a glory road, a way of law which the fallen creature can traverse by willing and working and thus gain the necessary merit eventually to arrive at glory. In so doing, the theologian of glory ends up calling evil good and good evil. They call works good and suffering evil. But Luther says, because men misuse the knowledge of God through works, God wished again to be recognized in suffering and to condemn wisdom concerning invisible things by means of the wisdom concerning visible things so that those who did not honor God as manifested in his works should honor him as he is hidden in his suffering. God refuses to be seen in any other way. Theologians of the cross, therefore, are therefore those whose eyes have been turned away from the quest for glory by the cross, who have eyes only for what is visible, what is actually there to be seen of God, the suffering and despised crucified Jesus. God simply refuses to be seen in any other way. It is by the cross that God destroys the wisdom of the wise as he said he would do in Isaiah and reiterates in 1 Corinthians. It is by the cross that in weakness and fear, like Paul, we may be reconciled to God. The cross is the power of God, and it is only by the cross that you may come to know God. It is by the cross that Christ claims you that Christ proclaims, you are loved, you are redeemed, you are forgiven. At the foot of the cross, there is no lofty speech. There is no wisdom as the world knows it. There is nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Thanks be to God. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.